I have a few thoughts for you on the readings this morning. And Miss Kim and Miss Grace uh, requested that I be short because they're outside in the rain and the 50 degree temperature. But I do want to share some thoughts with you. And I'd like to start with the collect for today. Now I'll be the first to admit that sometimes the collect of the day is a real dud, okay. Um, it just kind of shows up in the service and you kind of say it and you move on. But, but sometimes um, the collect for the day is like a stealth bomber that sneaks up on the radar and delivers a good message. I guess that's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? But um, today's collect hits us with a bold message. We're told right up front that our wills and affections are unruly. Our unruly wills and affections. And that might be an unusual word for us in 21st century America. I mean, I think we only limit its use to children sometimes. Children are being unruly, and we mean they're being rowdy. Um, but unruly literally means unable to be ruled, unable to follow rules, unable to be governed or controlled. And we don't like to think of our wills and affections being like that outside of our control. We like to think that we're in charge of our will and our affections, but all too often, we're not. It's outside of our control. And that's uncomfortable, especially when we face a world where, as again, our colic tells us, we live among the swift and varied changes of this world. We're told that Almighty God alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners and that must, we must receive grace to love what God commands and desire what God promises. It isn't natural, the colic tells us, for us to love what God commands and desire what God promises, but instead we must receive it by grace. This is why our passage, passage this morning from Jeremiah is so powerful. One way of thinking about just this paragraph from Jeremiah is that it's the conclusion of the entire Old Testament. It's the pinnacle of Old Testament prophecy. It's the, the high point of an entire body of literature. Because in these few lines, God promises a new covenant. Not the old covenant of Moses, the old covenant that had been broken over and over. But God promises a new covenant. A law that's written on the heart. And this means more than a list of rules. It means a conversion. A conversion of the heart. A conversion of, yes, unruly wills and affections by the grace of God. That old covenant so easily disintegrated over and over again into the kind of religion we would design for ourselves. A nice, simple, standard approach. We, should, we would find a set of rules and follow them so that the divine being will like us or at least not be mean to us. It's a pattern we see around the world. But God here promises a new covenant. And he promises to forgive iniquities and remember your sins no more. Don't we have a tendency to remember sins? Both those that we've committed and those that have been committed against us. We have a tendency to remember sins. Recently, a politician did something foolish. It wasn't a sin. It wasn't a moral crisis or a moral failure. It wasn't illegal. It was just something foolish. It doesn't matter who the politician is. Pick one. 
just did something kind of dumb. And I was watching some commenters on TV about it, and they, and they said, when, when this man is up for re-election again, the voters are going to remember this. I thought, isn't that true? There are going to be people who will decide to vote for or against the guy because he did something just dumb. But the voters are going to remember. This morning I did a quick scan of, of, the, of the news and I saw just an opinion column and just saw the title, America Has Forgotten How to Forgive. I didn't read the column. If you Google for it and it's something bad, I didn't read it. But I read that title and said, yeah. And how many things can we think of to apply that to? But God who is infinitely holy and infinitely remembering, no shortage of mental capacity, says that he will forget our iniquities and remember our sins no more. And that's only possible because of compassion and forgiveness. A TV producer recently was, was being interviewed and, and she said that she liked, um, uh, she enjoyed revenge. And she said, revenge isn't a dish that's best served cold, it's best served at whatever temperature you got. She says, I, I live for revenge. And the interviewer said, what about forgiveness? And she said, well, that's a Christian thing. And I thought, it is. Forgiveness is a Christian thing because Jesus became one of us, so he knows our weaknesses. Not only does he know our weaknesses, the Hebrews passage says that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. Not just is aware of them, but sympathizes with them. In every way tempted, Hebrews says, tested like we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near. Why have confidence? Because in every way he was tempted, tested like we are, yet without sin. We can approach the throne of grace and find grace with confidence because God understands, in fact, sympathizes with our weaknesses. In Hebrews specifies that in the days of his flesh, this is verse 7 of chapter 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Do you offer up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears? Well, Jesus did too. And we see this in our gospel reading. In verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. It's interesting, he says, now is my soul troubled. What's the now that his soul is troubled at? He's just told his disciples that he must die. And not only that, but they too must lose their lives. He uses the picture of a grain of wheat, which all by itself is just alone. But when it dies, it produces an abundance and it's clear that Jesus is not only talking about the death of Jesus because he goes on to say, if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, you'll find it. It's not a coincidence that he's talking about dying when he talks about losing life because this is the gospel. 
We must die to self, to ego. We must die to our unruly wills and affections. And only when we die to self, to ego, do we find new life. Jesus' call is clear. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And Jesus is clearly referring to his own death, not simply following along the same road. Elsewhere, of course, you know, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus' call is clear to come and die and in death find new life. That's the call of Jesus, and the call is clear. Will you answer that call? Or will you, like the people in the crowd, just think that it's thunder? In Jesus' name, amen.